Snowy. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 335. Jason Lingren is with me, and it is just the two of us today. And we're going to close out the trilogy on the 60s we did. So there have been two past episodes recently on the 60s. And as promised, we're going to cap the 60s. And, and for those that were not alive, it was really a heck of a time. The, the instability and the fear and all the things had crept into American life that previously did not exist. As a matter of fact, I'll go so far as to say the previous decade, the 50s, was probably, from all, all intents and purposes, the people that I've known that lived it, the 50s were the golden age to be an American. Um, just like every day was sunshine, everyone was prosperous. That's how it's perceived anyhow. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good morning. So, Jason, where are we going to pick up here um, just to put a timeline? Because we've done two prior episodes earlier in the decade. We know the big ones that are going to be in the ending here is like the joke I used to make, Moon, Manson, Woodstock. But we're about where are we going to pick up in the 60s here? We're going to be picking up in the late fall of 1966. Okay, so... As we go through this in hour one, as people haven't been paying attention online, the heat is on. We're going to lay down a framework, and then in hour two, we're going to do what we always do. Um, but it's getting hot in here, to say the least. Uh, anyhow, go ahead, Jason. On October 6th, 1966, the state of California made LSD a controlled substance, making the drug illegal. The rest of the country would do so in 1968. In response to the criminalization of psychedelics, San Francisco hippies staged a gathering in the Golden Gate Park panhandle called the Love Pageant Rally, attracting an estimated 700 to 800 people. As explained by Alan Cohen, co-founder of the San Francisco Oracle paper, the purpose of the rally was twofold, to draw attention to the fact that LSD had just been made illegal and to demonstrate that people who used LSD were not criminals nor were they mentally ill. Supposedly, but not confirmed, Cohen said that those who took LSD were mostly idealistic people who wanted to learn more about themselves and their place in the universe, and they used LSD as an aid to meditation and to creative artistic expression. The Grateful Dead played, and some sources claim that LSD was consumed at the rally. <laughs> so let's compare and contrast uh, our October 6, 1966 newspaper media in, in San Francisco with what we see now. Um, I don't know if you agree with me, Jason, but this is almost like an advertisement for this isn't illegal, but there's really nothing wrong with it. And if you're a curious person who wants to know more about the universe, you should probably do this. I mean, that's kind of how this comes off. Well, I think it was an excuse to get together and get them all baked again. We know what they're doing by this point. Well, it's a bit ironic. People can go online. Um, there's an old George Harrison clip, for whatever it's worth, where he claims he was given LSD and went to go see what was going on in San Francisco. And he, by his own words, was not impressed. He called them a bunch of spotty teenagers or something like that. But he claims that someone had a microscope so that they could look at their blotter type acid. I'm assuming it was liquid. And when he looked through the microscope, it looked like a bunch of old rotting knotted ropes. And he said he threw it away and never did it again. But the, int the interview is interesting because right there in the midst of it with a supposed band member of one of the bands that was probably Apex in starting the drug psychedelic culture. I mean, if the Beatles wasn't who was, 
course, the, the dead. But uh, other than that, he's basically saying he was ashamed of what was going on in San Francisco. And this drug looked like something you shouldn't take. And by the way, the use of this drug is going to increase, I, if I had to guess from personal observation, at least into the early 70s. Oh, yeah, easily. And, that, you know, there's another thing about this, you know, now that we're all up in an age where you're worried about what you're eating and you're thinking, oh, this is organic. Is it really? And you're trying to figure out, is, is this really organic food? Think about LSD. It's a chemical that someone either put a drop on a piece of paper or you have some liquid to take. You have no idea how it was made or where it was made. And this particular drug had been experimented extensively. Uh, from the research we've done, at least back in the 30s, I think it was Switzerland, where they had done much research on this drug. But it was pretty clear at the time that you never knew what you're going to get. After all, fast forward before we get there, the silly scene in the supposed Woodstock film, don't take the brown acid or you'll go on a bad trip. Um, it just goes to show. The Beat Generation, especially those associated with the San Francisco Renaissance, gradually gave way to the 1960s-era counterculture with an accompanying shift in terminology from beatnik to freak and hippie. Many of the original Beats remained active participants, notably poet Allen Ginsberg, who became a fixture of the anti-war and hippie movements. Well-known Beat author Jack Kerouac, on the other hand, broke away from his friend Allen Ginsberg and would go on to criticize the 1960s protest movements as an excuse for spitefulness. Bob Dylan would become close friends with Allen Ginsberg, and Ginsberg would become close friends with known CIA asset LSD pusher Timothy Leary. Both Leary and Ginsberg were introduced to LSD by Michael Hollingshead in the early 1960s, and both became instrumental in popularizing it and other psychedelic substances to the hippie movement. In 1963, Ginsberg was living in San Francisco with Neil Cassidy and Charles Plymel. Around that time, Ginsberg connected with Ken Kesey, who was participating in CIA-sponsored LSD trials at the Menlo Park Veterans Hospital, where he worked as a night aide while a student at Stanford. As you can see, there are several direct indicators that certain aspects of the drug movements were being steered in one way or another by the CIA. I don't, I mean, it's so well documented at this point. What we're actually laying down here is like old hat, Jason, even to the point where uh, we tracked down that a lot of this drug was being created in the university laboratories. But you can even see the branding that's going to come with it um, because words have meaning. You know, words always have meaning. So this idea of the 50s kind of beatnik uh, turns into a freak and then slowly into a hippie. And as you saw in Tarantino's last movie, uh, the, the view of a lot of society of the hippie movement was they were lazy and dirty. They didn't work. They didn't shower. Um, but there is absolutely no denying that Timothy Leary was a CIA asset. This is documented. And Ken Kesey, and how many times have we tracked the work of Ken Kesey directly? Well, where does it start, Jason? Is it the, uh, the Monterey Pop Festival? Is that where we pick up the thread there? That's the first massive dosing of the kids, yeah. It's just, it's hard to paint an accurate picture of how stark this was. I don't know how many people out there listening have ever done LSD, but it is no joke. It 
changes everything. And for some people, not in a good way. And back in the day, there was an idea that some people would be affected for a lifetime after the fact. And as I've already pointed out, it's not like there was a Betty Crocker recipe. This is how you make LSD. Uh, something else entirely was going on. And that plays back into what Jason was calling the CIA LSD trials. Well, what are you trying? This has been well studied since the 30s in Switzerland, where it was supposedly invented. Um, this is a hell of a, a tactic. And among all the things that we've ever covered, I don't think anything has worked any better than this, Jason. Not only does it quell the generation at hand in the 60s, but it bleeds, I don't know, all the way up to the, to the decades we live in now. Well, it's kind of ironic that this generation that was rebelling against everything are now the same ones telling you to put on masks and uh, just all of it. It's a strange thing. You know, someone should actually do a study on all these supposed very liberal hippies when they grow up. So many of them went the opposite way. And why do you think that is? Well, I knew a lot of these people that were very liberal and partiers early on in life, and they went very conservative later. And I think this is my personal speculation for whatever it's worth, is they looked back on their childhood thinking, I don't want my kid doing what I did. Uh, I think that's a big part of what it did. But it's you got to wonder if the social programmers knew if you take a very liberal segment of the population and do certain things, do you know that they're going to become very conservative later? Um, it, all we can do is speculate, but it is crazy how most of these people went you know, 180 degrees off what they were doing in their 20s. Well, I'm sure they have the data now, don't they? <laughs> if they didn't, then they sure as heck do now. Um, they've got all the data now, and the cell phone in your pocket proves it. A hippie. And what is a hippie? A hippie is a member of certain aspects of the counterculture of the 1960s. Hippie culture started out as a youth movement that began in the United States during the mid-1960s, which then spread to other countries around the world. The word hippie comes from the word hipster and was used to describe beatniks who moved into Chicago's Old Town community, New York's Greenwich Village, with the most well-known, of course, being the San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district. The term hippie was used in print by San Francisco writer Michael Fallon, helping popularize the use of the term in media, although it is thought to have been used elsewhere earlier. The origins of the terms hip and hap are unknown. By the 1940s, both had become part of African-American jive slang and meant sophisticated, currently fashionable, and fully up-to-date. The Beats adopted the term hip, and early hippies took on a lot of the language and countercultural values of the Beat generation. Hippies would go on to create their own communities, often listened to psychedelic music, and embraced the ongoing 1960s sexual revolution with what was often known as free love. The vast majority of hippies used drugs, minimally smoking grass or marijuana, and many would use LSD and other heavy psychedelics to explore altered states of consciousness in an attempt to explore higher realms of thought. Well, whether or not that happened for very many people, I think is quite questionable. Uh, there was a lot of damage done by the drug use. And what it basically did from my perspective is it took the steam out of a generation that was big in numbers, big on ideals, not down with violence and war. I think those were all true things. And there was a whole 
mess of them ready to do something and to deflate that balloon drugs was one of the things implemented but as jason and i have covered earlier and what's the gentleman who wrote laurel canyon please jason that would be dave mcgowan so as mr mcgowan is one of the first people probably to point it out before the hippies had a look there was a shop opened up uh in in conjunction with the laurel canyon movement which was all prescribed you know, engineering, social engineering uh, that created the look for the hippies before the fact. Well, I'll ask another question. We get to the point where it's the sexual revolution and free love. Is it a coincidence that birth control came online right about the same time? If you see where I'm going there. It's almost like a high end Hollywood designer came up with some ideas, doesn't it? Well, think about the issue. So how did we end up with so many young people in that generation? Well, after World War II, everyone lived the high and mighty 50s where almost everyone was happy. Um, people could afford things. It was supposedly the golden age of, of being an American. So they had a lot of children. As I grew up in the 60s, Every family, when we used to come to Rhode Island, had minimally three kids. There was one in our neighborhood that had five. Get this. There was another one that named his boat eight O's because their name started with O. And then they had to add a plus one. That's nine children. There was one family in our neighborhood that had a single child. Everyone else had the typical 3.5. So here's the issue at hand. The baby boomers um, have children. Well, they are the baby boomers, and they are the children of the, the World War II generation. If all those people would have prescribed to th free love and sex without birth protection, there would have been a boom of births like this world had never seen. So I'll ask you again, is it coincidence or was it clever design that brought the birth control in with the free love movement? The Human Bee-In was an event held in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, Polo Fields, on January 14, 1967. It was a prelude to San Francisco's Summer of Love, which made the Haight-Ashbury District a well-known symbol of the American counterculture. It also introduced the word psychedelic to the mainstream masses. The counterculture that surfaced at the Human Bee-In encouraged people to question authority with regard to civil rights, women's rights, and consumer rights. Underground newspapers and radio stations served as its means to spread its message. 20,000 are thought to have attended the event. The human being invited hippies from across the city and across California to turn on, tune in, drop out. The hippie mantra made infamous by psychologist and LSD proponent Timothy Leary, spoken for the first time at the Bee-In. Also in attendance were Richard Alpert, who would soon be known as Ram Das, the previously mentioned Allen Ginsberg, who chanted mantras, and fellow poets Gary Snyder and Michael McClure. Other counterculture gurus also made appearances, which included comedian Dick Gregory, Lenore Kandel, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Jerry Rubin, and Alan Watts. Music was provided by multiple local rock bands, which included Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, Big Brother and The Holding Company, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and Blue Cheer, most of whom had been staples of the Fillmore and the Avalon Ballroom. Let's also not forget to mention underground chemist Owsley Stanley, who provided massive amounts of his White Lightning LSD, specially produced for the event, as well as 75 
20-pound turkeys, which were freely distributed by the diggers. The diggers were a radical community action group of activists and street theater actors who operated from 1966 to 1968 in the Haight-Ashbury. So that was a big mouthful to lay down what should be pretty obvious to anyone. So what you're looking at here is the social engineering that we can see so clearly in reverse, and it comes complete with branding. The words and the language always lead the way uh, from my point of view. So this period of time is about to get the branded moniker Summer of Love, which, by the way, when the 60s is about to end, they are going to end the idea of innocence, freedom, and this love idea that had been building since early in the 60s. Um, but this is where they take it a bit further. The idea of psychedelic, you know, the tie-dye, all these things, it's going to get its uniform, its look. But the big kicker here is Timothy Leary. He was on the evening news almost all the time, and he coined turn on, tune in, drop out uh, as he was perpetuating LSD use. And we've shown that he was an asset of intelligentsia. So what's that about? Does anyone need to be told what that's about? But it goes further because back in these days, people were not suspicious of the bands. Everyone loved the music. But again, words have meaning. Grateful Dead, Big Brother, and The Holding Company. <laughs> well, The Holding Company, it, it, that, that's about holding drugs. Back in the day, that was slang. Big Brother is lifted from 1984. Quicksilver Messenger, uh, there's your Mercury encode and it goes on and on and by the way the people who followed the grateful dead became wait for it dead heads so you can see what's going on here but how does anyone miss that this was engineered from the get-go and that you could know it even if you just looked at timothy leary but there was so much more than just timothy leary by the way this event is on youtube if you want to watch it and i did and <laughs> it's kind of funny it's really just a setup for everybody to get together and get completely out of their heads. I think if, if I'm going to, all the research that we've done and living in the period of time that I did, if I'm going to mark the official out in the daylight kickoff of this whole engineering of the counterculture, I would mark that at the Monterey Pop Festival uh, and everybody there as well. And by the way, if you go look at that, you can look that film up on, on YouTube. Look, look at how people are acting. Look at how the famous people who are about to become mega stars, people from the mamas and the papas and, you know, the, the head guy in that band is so integral. McGowan took that apart seven ways to Sunday. We don't need to, but just scrutinize what's going on and how people are acting. And you start to get the staged nature of everything that's going on there. I've watched the Monterey film that was made from that, and I also watched some of what they called hippie exploitation films that uh, were filmed in 67, 68, and uh, I'm sure some in 69 as well. And it's very interesting to see the portrayal of this era. Uh, one of the things that jumped out to me immediately was the fact that there's hardly any fat people. <laughs> and their hair, right? I'm with you. I was just, I just looked at this show. I, I take care of my very old mother. And so we end up on Turner Classic Movies when I've got to be with her and take care of her. And they just ran a show on the fifth Olympics in 1915 in Stockholm. And it's exactly what Jason's laying down. There's no fat people. Even the heavy people are not really fat. They're just 
solid. Um, but I, we didn't see one bald person and all that. And go, go back to what Jason just said, review the Monterey pop festival. Look at how much hair some of those women have, how thick it is. You can tell, um, that our, our nutrition has gone down, but there's another part we should mention here. The, the programming was so strong because of the counterculture music, but even in the music, they were directing people on how they should be acting, how you should look, where you should go, come to San Francisco, but make sure you've got flowers in your hair. It was all encompassing, directing people what to do and how to do it. And all the bands were basically on payroll, weren't they? It appears to be the case, yes. Well, if you don't want to be so blunt to say on payroll, let's just simply say the message was coming through them, whether they approved of it or not. Yeah, they might not have been on a direct payroll, although they probably got kickbacks. I think it's more like they were guided to be successful from their uh, business standpoints. I think that's a good way to put it because people get tied up in, well, what the hell are you guys talking about? Was was Jimi Hendrix a great guitarist or wasn't he? Yeah. He's a master of his craft. But I would ask, Jason's a talented musician. What if someone would have grabbed Jason when he was halfway through high school and started nurturing every possibility about him becoming a musician and opening the doors or or like the Beatles? You know what? You guys are going to Germany for a long, long time. You're going to play five, six gigs a day. You're going to hone your craft. You're going to figure out how it works. And by the way, you're only 16. I would suggest that there would be a world full of Jimi Hendrix-like talent if other people were were given the same treatment. Yeah, it's definitely food for thought. And uh, it's very, very understood at this point that the, I don't want to say the entirety, but a huge bulk of the 1960s musical movement It was definitely coerced minimally, but uh, a lot of it was constructed and then guided. You know, if you look at like the the big thing now that we're lacking is musicality. You can't really compare most of the music that comes out today or what we call music, because back then they were shifting from basically a big band era where everyone was a very skilled musician. Then they kind of came into the folk era, which was a little toned down. But by the time you get to Zeppelin, there's still people around who are musically talented. In other words, they could go read sheet music, do all these things. But look at the nature of some of the progressive bands as talents, like a band like ELP, as an example. These these guys, some of them are classically trained. Um, Look at bands later that survived the test of time, like Rush. I don't think most people can argue that the drummer was apex and that the skill of their guitarist was musically savvy compared to most genres of music. Um, And so what you see is what I'm pointing out. Is it that these are just rare talents in the world or is it that they were given the possibility and the doors were opened for them to focus all their energy? It's almost like an Olympian, right? Um, Back in the day, professionals could not come into the Olympics in the United States. I think that changed in the year they did the famous basketball, professional basketball players. Um, But my point is um, the, the people for the Olympians, they were training you know, some part of the year, the whole time. And that's how you get to be world-class athlete. I would suggest that it's no different for the the best musicians of our time. And that is not to say that some people are just born crazy talented. Of course, that's true. But uh, I, I would say all day long, Jason, you're a pretty talented musician, much more than I am. And if someone would have nurtured you from age 15 forward, who knows what you could have been. It's something I've thought about a lot. 
it bears considering because usually the argument is, well, what the hell are you talking about? Look at all this talent. Well, yeah, you can't argue with the talent, but the point I would make is none of this works without the talent, right? That's correct. So you have to have musical talent to begin with. But even when you look at the later generations of musicians, uh, the, the 27 Club kept on going. It's still that these young people are being nurtured. And the, the one thing that's unfortunately a fair statement to say about younger people, a lot of times they just don't know what they're getting involved in. It's not really realistic to think that they're all bloodlines and things like that. Although we know for certain people like David Crosby are. Actually, m- most of that era's bands, Jason, based yeah. on McGowan alone. But later on, it's just that they found what it is that they wanted to push, and then they got the kids to do it. And they nurtured them, as we were saying, until they were capable of doing what they wanted. By the time you get to the 80s, it's rinse and repeat. How many zillions of bands were basically just sounding like each other at that point? Because they were just, that's what they wanted to push. They needed the look. It had switched over at that point to get rid of the musicality. And there were talented musicians, but mostly you're right. There was very little innovation and the look started to trump the music. But let's take another example. Let's take two. Let's take a Paul McCartney as an example because Beatles, hello. And let's take another big one like U2. Uh, you can probably still look up clips of the Bono, Bono on uh, of of you two saying when we started this band none of us knew how to play our instruments and he's talking about it all the way up when they're starting to get be a big world name that they didn't know how to play their instruments well there's a little movie out there little known called it might get loud where edge the guitarist uh pairs off with of all people jimmy page and jack white the point i'm making is does anyone out there consider uh the edge a talented highly musical guitarist i'll just ask that question If you watch that movie, you'll see that it's basically a couple, two, three notes put through a lot of processing. Now let's flip over to Paul McCartney. If I'm not mistaken, Jason, uh, was it the 90s where Sir Paul McCartney claimed he had made a complete orchestra? He'd he'd orchestrated a complete, whatever you want to call it, it's not a concert, you know, but he orchestrated a whole event for the, I think it was the Royal Albert Hall or something. And he admittedly can't even read music. So what's going on there? And I think what it is, is, yeah, they're going to bluff their way and they're going to lift this person up and they're going to make it look like he can play at that level. I would suggest to you that I don't accept he can play at that level. And Edge is a perfect example of, I'll tell you what, Jason's got more talent all day long than the lead guitarist for you two, in my eyes, as far as musicality is concerned. Well, whoever the current person who's using the name Paul McCartney is, He is a very talented person. (laughs) I saw him in 2010, and I watched him jump from instrument to instrument. That person is very musically skilled. I can't disagree with you, but I've also seen these weird things like, what was that other other film I told you you'd be interested in where they're talking about the Neve uh, recording board from Sound City? Sound City, yeah, that was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, if you're a music person, you'll be interested because everybody's in it because the King Dave Grohl got them. But Mr. McCartney shows up with a weird guitar playing in a very simplified way. Um, But at the end of the day, they're making music that's at least interesting. Um, So I'm with you. (laughs) Whoever that is uh, can pick up a few instruments. But can they orchestrate for a full orchestra? Are we buying that? It depends upon when he did it because the computer technology changed everything. People can sit down and do that if you at least have an inkling of musical knowledge. You could sit down in front of... Well, the most common one is Pro Tools. It's not what I use. I use a 
program called Studio One. But you could sit and layer all that stuff. Yeah, it's possible, at least nowadays. Oh, actually, you're making a good point that had not really entered because I had it in my mind. He did that before computers were prevalent, but you may be true. And not only that, if he did do it that way, he could get the sheet music written automatically, couldn't he? Yes. Yep. So who knows? But uh, I, I guess I'm not buying. Uh, if it was done by ear in, in a uh, computer, maybe I'm buying a little bit. But if it's before that possibility, I'm just not buying because I'm skeptical. I've been lied to too many times. So I'm going to question it all day long. In 1967, U.S. troops in Vietnam are now up to 500,000. The Vietnam situation is extremely unpopular with many Americans at this point, leading to huge protests against the Vietnam conflict, which would occur throughout the year in New York City, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. This was such a destabilized era that America had never experienced. If these numbers are true, when I was in the Marine Corps, there were less than five, 500,000 Marines, the whole Marine Corps. Uh, I remember they had already started to downsize, but think about that. That's a half a million people. Who knows how many people were actually there? Uh, but the point is you have a major portion of your society involved in some war and a super major portion of the young people against it. Can you think of a more divisive thing to go on in the world? I'm, I, I can't. Uh, so divisive. Everything had just flipped on a dime. Everything's bright and sunny in the 50s, and here's the 60s, and everything will change all the way up to the decade we exist in now. I watched a, uh, I think it was a 10-part documentary series on Vietnam with a lot of people from both sides actually interviewed. And the one thing I took away from that, there's no military strategy being used other than the massive bombing, which should stop a lot of your opposition. But as far as straightforward military tactics like you would have seen, say, in World War II, it's like they just were throwing people at it like a meat grinder. And then they'd leave an area and it would just get taken over again by the enemy. Like the whole thing just didn't make sense. It was a completely senseless waste of life. It seems like it was just a tool for people who shouldn't be allowed to play with tools. Look at the portrayal of Vietnam in Apocalypse Now. Coppola's lauded film about Vietnam, where basically if you got a colonel, well, we're going to go blow this place up today. And by the way, we're having a party on the beach when it's done. And can you trade some of our Jeeps for this other stuff we need? Um, that's the portrayal that really rises to the surface that you see over and over and over. And as we've pointed out, uh, war was never declared. And that is a very telling thing on the surface of it. And do I need to remind everyone again, Mr. Jim Morrison of the Doors' father was an admiral who was involved in the admitted now false flag event called the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which is what launched us into Vietnam and was later discovered to be a false flag event. And I think it was outed in documents called the Pentagon Papers. You can look all those things up. Um, it's crazy how myopic we are in real time, I, I would just add. March 25th, 1967, the anti-war movement got a big boost when the civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr., went public with his opposition to the war on moral grounds, condemning the war's diversion of federal funds from domestic programs, as well as the disproportionate number of African-American casualties in relation to the total number of soldiers killed in the conflict. 
At a march of over 5,000 protesters in Chicago, Martin Luther King called the Vietnam conflict a blasphemy against all that America stands for. So the division is just constantly ramping up in this portion of American history. And I was alive to see, I was a little bit young for part of the 60s, but when I got older, um, I saw what was going on and my family worked in universities. So that was close to the whole university scene um, where actually the hippies were kind of crossed over. Some were actually in the schools and the universities. Uh, it wasn't all just as Tarantino would have you think, just people wandering the street, not working, growing their hair. Um, but there's so much I could say about Martin Luther King, but I think we're going to have to do it an hour or two, Jason. Um, and I'll ask openly, does this play into the killing of the king? And that relates to Kennedy. But I mean, words have meaning here. We better save it for the next hour. At the end of August of 1966, the Beatles permanently retired from touring and would pursue individual interests for the next three months. During a return flight to London in November, Paul McCartney had an idea for a song involving an Edwardian military band that formed the impetus for a new album concept. Released on May 26, 1967, that album was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the Beatles' eighth studio album. It would spend 27 weeks at number one on the record retailer chart in the United Kingdom and 15 weeks at number one on the Billboard Top LPs chart in the United States. The album was lauded by critics for its innovations in songwriting, production, and graphic design for bridging a cultural divide between popular music and high art and for reflecting the interests of contemporary youth and the counterculture. Its release was a defining moment in 1960s pop culture, heralding the summer of love, while the album's reception achieved full cultural legitimization for pop music and recognition for the medium as a genuine art form. I might also add that this time period from when the Beatles stopped touring to when they start working on Sgt. Pepper is the thought-to-be time when, if there was a switch of Mr. Paul McCartney from the original James Paul McCartney, if that indeed happened, it almost certainly happened in that time frame. Well, I have eyes, and I can recognize that the first guy is not the next guy in this period of time. I have no trouble with saying it. I won't. I mean, it's obvious if you look carefully. Um, but I'll ask a question here, Jason. I mean, you could almost view Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band having the largest effect on a world population compared to anything else we could think of. Can you think of another thing that, I mean, it changes culture. It, it's on everyone's car radio. It's everywhere. Think about it. The production blew everyone's mind. That was the big thing. What they achieved in the studio for that album was unlike anything that had been done to that point, And it literally blew a lot of people's minds. And we should point out that music could never be played live and couldn't have been played by live by the Beatles had they toured until I think it was Beatlemania. Was that the cover band that finally had enough synthesizers to be able to play some of this music so one person could handle two or three parts? Something like that. I don't remember the exact story, but the point is, is these these guys could not have played the music live unless a bunch of it was pre-recorded. But why is it um, that Mr. Paul McCartney, the new Mr. Paul McCartney, uh, as is commonly accepted and known, even even from his own book, Billy's Back, if you don't believe me, go read his book. He admits it. 
why is it an Edwardian military band? Why does the Summer of Love and the 60s love movement have anything to do with a military band? And there's another tell. But I'm still thinking, Jason, I can't. I mean, there's got to be things that have had an effect that, that might equal it. But in terms of culture, I don't think I can think of another thing that even comes close. Not even the moon landing, for Christ's sake. No, musically speaking, that really just hit it home. And then, of course, everyone was scrambling to keep up with these production values and that wow factor that they put out there. I mean, it really knocked people's socks off. If you look at any kind of talk about that time period, that is the album that is always referenced. Well, there's another thing about this album. We're so used to it now. We It's hard looking at it critically, um, but there's so much in that album, which prior to that album wasn't really done or accepted. Used to be you bring a guitar into a studio and you try to make it sound as brilliant and as beautiful a guitar as you could. Now, all of a sudden, all this other stuff is going on, backwards music, things that are not crisp, clear notes. But at the end of the day, the big tell here, Jason, and I don't know if you agree with me, this is all studio manufacture, all of it, lock, stock, and barrel. Well, what we went from was trying to get an accurate recording of a live band, and not just the Beatles, I'm talking about in general, to this layering track by track, just how it's done today, except we use computers now, but that is what they were doing. They laid down their basic parts, but then they went back track by track. And because of the limitations of the technology at the time, they had to actually bounce between two four-track tape machines. So when you listen to Sgt. Pepper, you can kind of hear that lossiness because they kept having to fly what they would call flying between the machines. They'd bounce down to a track, take that, go back to the other one, and then back and forth until you got everything on there that you wanted. I've always wondered how much of that part of history is actually accurate in terms of what technology they actually had their hands on. Um, clearly, they're stating verbatim what other people would have had to do if they wanted to do it. But if we set all that, I've actually seen clips of another big producer. I think he's the guy who did Layla. He was an old dude with a white beard, died of lung cancer, I don't know, a decade or two ago. I forget his name. But he claims he went over there and he's saying, why are you guys so far behind us? We have this many tracks now. And the whole story didn't seem to jive with each other. But my main point here is the fifth Beatle, Sir George Martin. I don't think any of this even comes close to happening without the level of expertise that came with him. And by the way, if I'm not mistaken, Jason, doesn't his British coat of arms have Beatles on it? You know, didn't we try to look that up one time? I'm pretty sure it does. And I didn't know we were going to go down this road, but I believe the family crest or the coat of arms for Sir George Martin's family is Beatles. And I want to say it preceded his work with the Beatles, but I may be going a bridge too far. I may be misremembering, but I'm like 80% sure there's Beatles on that coat of arm. We should look it up and cover it in one of the next things we do. Yeah. Or at least if folks want to take the time to look that up, we can have a discussion of it in the comment section. And also, there's one more thing that we should talk about, as long as we brought up Sgt. Pepper's, that album art. Back in the day, for people who were way too old now, you remember what a big deal that 12-inch by 12-inch record sleeve was. The art was integral to how much cultural effect it was going to have. In other words, the, the cover of that album, if the album went big, the cover went as big as the music did back in the day. Then there was all these big sleeve notes, who was on it, all this other stuff. But that particular uh, album cover is almost got so much going on. It, it's beyond 
anyone's ability to easily describe what's there. And by the way, if I'm not mistaken, because I read it cover to cover, the book Billy's Back gets into this and makes claims on why certain of those people are, are on the uh, album cover. Well, think about how many kids wanted to know who each and every one of those people were. Every kid that loved the Beatles. Um, not only that, there's all the the encoding and you got to use a mirror to get the reflection to see all the things that were put into it. And then, of course, the grave idea is uh, hidden carefully in the flowers. Paul is dead is carefully built into that album cover. People can easily look these things up online and make their own decision. Um, whether they think it's legit or not. But I would point out that the thought that went into that album cover seems to defy the ability of four young lads from Liverpool. San Francisco, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. This is a song written by John Phillips of the band The Mamas and the Papas for his friend Scott McKenzie. It is said to have been written to serve as a promotion for both the upcoming Monterey Pop Festival that Phillips was helping to organize and to popularize the flower children of San Francisco. The song was released on May 13th, 1967, and was an instant success. By the week ending July 1st, 1967, it reached number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in the United States, where it remained for four consecutive weeks. The song also charted at number one in the United Kingdom and much of Europe. The single is purported to have sold more than 7 million copies worldwide. Social engineering indeed, as John Phillips is one of the many individuals known from the Laurel Canyon scene with serious military-industrial complex ties. And seems to have been a major mover and shaker. I'm not going to re reiterate McGowan's work, but he covers it. There's a couple people that do. But I would suggest, Jason, that what was discovered here, particularly with this band, is a good example, is what they are doing with this particular song where they're instructing people, hey, man, go to Haight-Ashbury. It's all happening in San Francisco. And by the way, be sure to look like a hippie. Put those flowers in your hair. And by the way, we all do LSD and everything that's implied in that going to to prop up the kickoff, the public kickoff of the movement, in my view, of the Monterey Pop Festival. But think about it. They're claiming 7 million copies were sold back then, or maybe that's all time. This is better than getting a spot on the evening news. And the reason is, is because music doesn't go away from the day that was published and went on the radio. It's been playing in living rooms, bedrooms, radios, Sirius Satellite, everywhere around the world ever since. And so think of the power and reach that they're discovering they have through these talented musicians. The Summer of Love was a social phenomenon that occurred during the summer of 1967, when as many as 100,000 people, mostly young people sporting hippie fashions of dress and behavior, converged in San Francisco's neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury. More broadly, the Summer of Love encompassed the hippie music, hallucinogenic drugs, anti-war, and free love scene throughout the West Coast of the United States and as far away as New York City. The term Summer of Love originated with the formation of the Council for the Summer of Love during the spring of 1967 as a response to the convergence of young people on the Haight-Ashbury district. The council was composed of Chet Helms' The Family Dog, The Straight Theater, The Diggers, The San Francisco Oracle, and approximately 25 other people who sought to alleviate some of the problems anticipating from the influx of people expected during the summer. The council also assisted the Free Clinic and organized 
housing, food, sanitation, music and arts, along with maintaining coordination with local churches and other social groups. <laughs> so let me just cut to the chase here. What, Jason? They've got a council. The council also assisted in a free clinic, organized housing, food, sanitation, music and art. Don't you normally need licenses for all this stuff? This this counterculture anti-establishment movement seems an awful lot like it's part of the establishment, doesn't it? The whole thing seems really wonky. Again, I was watching some of these hippie films and the way it's portrayed, and I think it's reasonably accurate, I don't know where these people were getting money from. And apparently (laughs) a lot of them just didn't have very much. They were kind of all piling into these houses and just taking a spot to crash on the floor. Well, that, that, that exactly what you have noticed as a flaw in, in the history we're being handed is the story of Woodstock, which we're going to take on in hour two, because we really can't talk in hour one about the Moon, Manson, and Woodstock the way we'd like to. But my point is, is go look at any of the movies that are trying to convince you to consider Woodstock in the way that movie wants, where this young hippie guy shows up with helicopters and limousines and bags of money. <laughs> And he's going to go set it from the beginning. What you're pointing out is a flaw in so much of it. Whose money? Where did it come from? Later on, they start backfilling like there's, you know, they tie it to a corporation or a law firm or these other things. But it's pretty clear that what you're latching onto there, I've had a problem with forever. Who funneled all this cash? The KFRC Fantasy Fair and Magic Mountain Music Festival was an event held June 10th and 11th, 1967 at the 4,000-seat Sydney B. Cushing Memorial Amphitheater high on the south face of Mount Tamalpace in Marin County, California. Although 20,000 tickets were reported to have been sold for the event, as many as 40,000 people may have actually attended the two-day concert, which was the first of a series of San Francisco-area cultural events known as the Summer of Love. The Fantasy Fair was influenced by the popular Renaissance Pleasure Fair and became a prototype for large-scale multi-act outdoor rock music events now known as rock festivals. Canned Heat, Dionne Warwick, Every Mother's Son, The Merry-Go-Round, The Mojo Men, P.F. Sloan, The Seeds, Country Joe and the Fish, Captain Beefheart, The Birds with Hugh Masakela on trumpet, Tim Buckley, The Sparrows, The Grassroots, The Loading Zone, The Fifth Dimension, and Jefferson Airplane were among the performers who appeared. The Fantasy Fair was also The Doors' first large show and happened during the rise of the group's first major hit, Light My Fire to the Top of the Charts. You know, if you were a detective on one of the old cheesy someone got killed murder shows they show on TV, the detective shows you exactly how to act. Who was the last person to see him alive? Who were the last people to know? You know, if you just use the simple detective thing from cheesy shows and start to ask the questions about these bands, you really could stop the moment you hit the doors. We already know who the doors are. We know who his father is. And by the way, I recently saw the movie, The Doors, that was done in the, I think, the 80s, maybe the 90s. Uh, 91, I think that came out. Yeah, with a Val Kilmer one, um, where he's going through there lying to everyone, saying, my parents were killed in a car crash with a bunch of Navajo Indians. Almost like a backstory that was built. And in that movie, the imagery of that is built to back it in. At no point is it shown that, no, my dad's actually a 10-star general 
you know, fake starting a war right now. But the uh, the prototype of this, who can argue? Because before this, this will morph eventually into stadium tours and other things. But it's also a shakeout, isn't it? Because Jason named a lot of bands no one's probably heard of. Who knows about P.F. Sloan or The Seeds? Um, Country Joe and the Fish, you might know about that, but it didn't go very much further than supposed Woodstock. Captain Beefheart, but then you get to the bands like The Birds. And by the way, Canned Heat, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm reasonably sure the most popular live album of all time, or one of them, was the guitarist for Canned Heat. What's his name there? What's the biggest double live album? Frampton. Isn't Frampton the, the guitarist for Canned Heat? pretty sure i guess i wouldn't stake my uh, dollar bill on it but you can see how this grows and certain things get shook out and bands like the fifth dimension jefferson airplane these are the ones that are going to produce material that gets popular and they're going to go on but here it is man this event is going to stage the doors for the first time and once you ask the simple question why was jim morrison lying about his parents then you begin to realize why he was lying about his parents and who he really is. And that backs McGowan's work to a level that I think is indisputable because basically at the root of what McGowan was doing is he said, how could it be possible that all these very famous bands all have military and industrial complex and intelligence parents? (laughs) That's a pretty simple question. But what do you find in Jason? According to his wiki, the associated acts for Peter Frampton are Humble Pie, BG. I blew it. I was thinking Canned Heat was Humble Pie, so that's my faux pas. I apologize. By the way, the Doors movie is known to be a huge load of poppycock for a lot of its uh, presented material. It is not a biography. As a matter of fact, Ray Manzarek said that he'd like to punch... Oliver Stone in the face for his portrayal. He said, first and foremost, the guy that he portrayed as Jim Morrison, he said, I'd never hang out with that guy. That guy was an asshole. Like the real Jim Morrison was not like that. Well, you know, that would echo back to Almost Famous where he's accused of being a drunken buffoon. That's how he's portrayed. But let's let's ask the, the question. So if Oliver Stone's playing shenanigans with that movie, what do we know about all his other movies? What about the ones that talk about all the Wall Street corruption? What about his movie? I think he did one on Bush. Um, you see what's going on here. These are just other methods of rewriting history and inserting an image of how you're supposed to remember a thing. And yet Oliver Stone has the reputation as if, oh, well, if Stone did it, it must have happened that way. What's weird about the whole thing is, as the doors themselves said, he had access. I mean, don't forget, this is quite a long time ago now. A lot of people from the 60s were still alive in 1990-91. He just didn't use what he was being told. Apparently, a lot of times he fabricated a ton of stuff, which was completely and utterly unnecessary. He had the doors themselves until he pissed some of them off to give him the goods like and how things went down. But nope. Case in point, Jason. So clearly he had a different narrative that he wanted to go out to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of minds that would then perceive the history of the doors and the way they saw it in the movie that shows you the history of the doors. And so even if Ray Manzarek or any other surviving, supposedly surviving door doors member came out and said, none of it was true. How many minds will hear those words? That wasn't true. Nowhere near the amount of minds that saw the movie. So you see how it works, but that's not really the point. The point is, why did Oliver Stone choose not to accurately portray it? The reason for that, in my point of view, is because his version of history is what he wanted to push. Social engineering, to put a fine point on it. 
Yeah, that's what it comes down to. He had access to the real thing and didn't use it. So, all right, that's going to do it for hour one. And when we get into hour two, we're going to pick up with, once again, Mr. Paul McCartney and his little chat on LSD. All right. So as everybody knows, um, in hour two, we can cut loose and it's a bit ridiculous. Um, We have respect for all living things. This podcast would never do anything to harm anyone. And yet the censorship is becoming unbearable. You really don't know what you can talk about and what you don't. And I think that's by design to make you unstable. But in hour two, we'll be able to address some things that I've made puns about for a long time. Moon Manson Woodstock being among them. I hope you'll join us at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com for the full blown out episode. And we're going to put the capstone on the third in the trilogy of episodes we did to illustrate what I accept is the actual change point for living in America and by proxy a lot of the world. Anyhow, having said that, join us at crow777radio.com. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers.
is the enemy. Is the enemy.